0: This This is
1: the Second Second
0: Story Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. When I was about 12 years old, I performed for the first time. I played Nicely Nicely in a production of Guys and Dolls Jr. I was ecstatic to perform, but especially nervous because I had to start the show off with the very first line, and I had to sing it and I'm basically tone-deaf. Nonetheless, that show started off my love of performance that continues till today. In this week's story, teller Rebecca Anderson shares how she's maintained and fostered her love of singing, even when her self-consciousness tried to shake it. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in June 2019, Second Story is proud to present Who gave you permission to sing?
0: So, the thing about having a parent who's a pastor, I mean, there are lots of things about having a parent who's a pastor, but one thing is that you get to grow up in the church. And I I mean you get to have for your own use the space of the church building. I got to have the sanctuary and all of its acoustics to myself. So I'd go over to church to do my homework, and when I shut off all the lights to walk home, I'd walk out through the sanctuary with a sense in the darkness of all this space above me. And the acoustics were so good. I'd sing my way out through the center aisle. I'd slow down and stop and sing. Phantom of the Opera, with high notes I couldn't hit from the hymnal, from our big book of dramatic contemporary Christian hits. I could make myself cry with the drama of it. But mostly what I felt was great. Like all that space was mine. And not just when I was alone, either. I sang solos in church, even on Christmas Eve. And I took it as gospel when people said, you were wonderful. I don't know when I decided I might not be. I don't know when or why I started to think I'd been fooling all those people myself. I didn't sound good or I didn't sound good enough to enjoy it so much. And instead of taking up that space that was mine, I started asking for it. In my freshman year of high school, I auditioned for the big spring musical, Man of La Mancha. The audition was held in the auditorium with everybody who was trying out scattered in the seats and the baby grand piano on the floor in front of the stage. Everything full of that theater smell. You know, thick dust settled into upholstery and heavy drapes, wood floors. A smell that in high school made me feel like maybe all was not lost. And our audition song was the big solo from the show, The Impossible Dream. I was terrified. I was eager, like this could be it. This could be the moment I'd find out, was I wrong? Had all those church people just been humoring me? Or... Was it possible I was actually amazing? (laughs) Mrs. Elaine Patton, now gone on to glory, was sitting at the piano. (laughs) The It Girl soprano of that year, a senior, Colleen Schilling, sat on the front row. She had perfect, gorgeous gold ringlets and jewel-tone lipstick that she managed to keep on all day long. She had an incredible voice, and she was like warm and supportive, not a bitchy it girl soprano, but a warm, lovely, encouraging it girl soprano. So (laughs) here goes Mrs. Elaine Patton with a sort of arpeggiated beginning to the impossible dream. And I think, fuck it, you know, the acoustics have to be kind of like the sanctuary, right? (laughs) And I started to sing, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, like a little shaky, but here's all that space, here all that space to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, and I looked up and I saw Colleen Shilling's face. Her mouth dropped open, that perfect lipstick. Her eyes were wide, and then a huge, astonished smile. I thought, okay, okay, and I kept singing through the end of whatever little excerpt we were singing, maybe not as far as this is my quest, and then the kids in the auditorium seats, probably only a dozen or so, went nuts with applause. Afterward, I waited for my mom in the lobby of our huge school building. The other kids were gone, my mom almost always late, which is where I get it, When she pulled up, I hit the push bar on the front doors and was out on the broad front plaza, hopping down the stairs, across the next flat, down the stairs, out, out, running to the car, grinning as I opened the car door. What happened, my mom said. Seems like maybe something happened. (laughs) Maybe like a boy asked you out? No, mom, I can sing like crazy. I didn't get the role, by the way. Like many a freshman with a perfectly decent voice, I played instead a voiceless prisoner who gets dragged off by the Inquisition. (laughs) But I'd found out, hadn't I? I mean, now I knew, I was right. I had, more or less, permission. 10 years later, I was in the living room of Phyllis Curtin waiting to sing. Phyllis Curtin debuted at the Metropolitan Opera in 1961. She lived her whole life there in city opera, and La Scala, and in Vienna, and here in Chicago at the Lyric. She originated the role of Susanna in Carlisle Floyd's opera called Susanna. And now she was retired to this dirt road overlooking a cow pasture, filled filled at one end with those huge round hay bales that are wrapped in white plastic, like big marshmallows. I lived in Berkshire County in Western Massachusetts, and Phyllis Curtin had retired to Berkshire County, so in spite of a pretty casual course of vocal study in college and an only medium serious interest in further study, I'd reached out to ask her if I could audition for her. And with time on her hands, maybe, and a love of teaching, she said yes. So there I was, fresh out of college, but still wearing my homemade long dress, standing waiting to sing with Phyllis Curtin at the piano. What have you brought me, she asked. The Emily Dickinson Song Cycle by Aaron Copeland. Oh yes, she said. She had this little tinkling laugh. I've sung those many times with Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) It occurred to me that, that I was out of my depth. That fall and winter, I went to Phyllis's house in South County out the dirt road, and I, I tried to follow instructions like lift your palate and imagine your voice out in front of you like a pearl rotating in the air.
1: <laughs>
0: Which is a difficult instruction to follow, especially when, when my voice had a little something I couldn't work around, an unpearl like roughness. Once, months into studying with her, I asked Phyllis Curtin, I mean Phyllis Curtin, you should go home and Google her if you want to cringe with me. Months into the work, with the hopefulness or dreaminess or ignorance of 23, I stood there in my hippie dress, looking out her picture window and asked her, where do I fall in the range of singers you've worked with? And Phyllis, kind, straight-backed, Pearl-voiced Phyllis said, probably the lower 50%. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the warmth of standing there, I mean, the heat of it, I mean, and and simply taking it in, straight-backed, dirt road-voiced Rebecca, hearing from someone who had real, worldwide assessment to offer that, what, I wasn't cut out for the Met? Like, what was more embarrassing to me? That I, that I asked or that her answer somehow felt like news? <laughs> like, had I, until that moment, thought that I still had an, an undiscovered, world-class operatic voice? I stood there and I took it in, quickly, because at some point, almost right away, we started again to sing. The thing about being a pastor, there are lots of things, but one is that if you can sing, it becomes part of your job. Every service, there are four or five songs. There's an opening song, an upbeat little song after the passing of the piece. There's a song before the sermon to sort of, like, get you in the mood. There's a doxology and a big closing number. I'm good at the singing part of my job. I know how fast certain songs go and whether they should be moved down a step or two. I can tell if a song is singable or not. I mean, plus, I can read music, I can harmonize, I can teach people songs. And yet, more than one music director has doubted that any of this is true. <laughs> I know you like to sing, said one extremely serious little organist. <laughs> his wide eyes unblinking behind his extremely serious. Organist glasses, (laughs) but this is a more classical repertoire. I had tried mentioning that I'd studied music, some theory even, and quite a bit of performance, actually, and then driven to it by the organist, I said, for a while, actually, I had a very fancy voice teacher. Phyllis Curtin, I said, like he wouldn't know. And the organist, and others have too, he acted like it's a password. It opens up hidden walls and makes more space for me to do my thing. You know, part of my privilege is that I have a secret phrase. But even Phyllis Curtin knows that you don't need permission. Lower 50%, keep singing. The reason I can sing, and I can really well, really usefully, in two different churches where I teach and lead music every Sunday, it has nothing to do with somehow learning to sing around the gravel in my throat or figuring out how to imagine my voice like a pearl. I sing like I bake bread, like I make compost. I mean, they're Perfect, precise ways to do those things. You got a kitchen scale, or, or you turn the pile every three days, or you can make sure the water's not too hot. You can make sure that the kitchen scraps, when you add them to the barrel, are covered with some dirt. And either way, you get bread, you get compost. That's the kind of singer I am. <laughs> One morning last fall, I was working solo. My co pastor was away, and it was a big day. There were two baptisms for two little boys. Their out of town family was all there for the event. And one of them was old enough that when it was his turn, his parents didn't hold him, but he stood in front of me on the floor with a fluffy white towel wrapped around his shoulders. So he looked up at me while well, I reminded him that I was going to put water on his head. At, and reminded the congregation that baptism is a symbol that God loves them, that we don't do anything to earn it, that we can't do anything to lose it. Okay, I said to the little boy, and he nodded. And I put a handful of water on his head three times until it dripped down his face. He never smiled, but he caught at the water with his lower lip. It was a big morning, and it was just me. I hate mornings like this. The Rebecca Anderson Show. Like, church is supposed to be a thing we make together, a place for lots of voices, and instead, it's just me. I do the welcome, and the prayers, and the announcements, and I do all the running around before service, and I answer all the questions that people think they should definitely ask in the three minutes right before we start. (laughs) Plus, I had the baptisms and the sermon, and then, at the last minute, our soloist had to cancel. Sick, our paid, professional, trained soloist. She had been planning to sing Bridge Over Troubled Water. And you know, it just so happens I love Simon and Garfunkel. (laughs) I know that song. So the pianist and I ran through it before church, and then after the welcome and announcements and sermon and baptism and prayers, I stepped down to the floor next to the baby grand piano. Quinn at the piano began to play, and I kept my eyes down on the open binder I was holding in front of me smiling a little, which I do when I'm self-conscious. A bright morning, the sun came in through the high windows over our small congregation. And while Quinn walked up and down through those heavy chords, I just sang it. I sang the parts that are technically too high for me and the dramatic final chorus and sail on, silver girl. And somewhere in there, I looked up, at the sunlight and the congregation, the sanctuary. Our church council president was grinning from where she always sits halfway back on the center aisle. A guy on the opposite side had his cell phone out recording. And this famous old comic book artist who goes to our church sat near the back and he was crying. It's a thing we made together. It's a place for lots of voices, including mine.
1: This story was produced by Kit Ryan, curated by Amanda Delheimer and Vince Pagan, and directed by Matt Ferries. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meagher, and Flome, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz. This this, this is the second, second
0: story podcast.